Thank you, choir. And this morning, as we do continue our study of the Apostles' Creed, and we are up to the birth of Jesus in it, we're going to read that story again from the Gospel of Matthew. So if you'd like to follow along, it's Matthew 1, verses 18 through 23. You'll find it on page 1 of your New Testament. Page 1. So Matthew 1, starting at verse 18. Wait a second, we need to pray, don't we? Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you again for sending Jesus into the world. As we listen to that word speak to us this morning, may you gift us with your spirit so that the word in front of us is the word revealed to us in Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. So again, Matthew 1, starting at verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be a child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what has been spoken by the Lord to the prophet, look, The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I was watching an interview, actually listening to an interview, and it doesn't really matter who it was, but just a very simple exchange. The interviewer asked the person being interviewed, do you have a spiritual practice? And the person who was responding, the one being interviewed, said, "Uh, no, much to my mother's chagrin, I don't go to church anymore. And then the interviewer came back and said, you do know that you can have a spiritual practice that's something other than going to church. And you guys know that too, right? Going to church is not the only spiritual practice. You understand that he kind of, the person being interviewed kind of jumped in with a big assumption there. Not necessarily a bad assumption, but kind of a big one. And I start off that way this morning because when we get up to Jesus, what we need to recognize is some things about the context of him being the word of God, not necessarily a place that you go to, but a voice that you listen to. And to do that, I want you to ask yourself this question, because this is something Christians have had to deal with multiple times. The people of God have had to deal with multiple times in history is, If you didn't come to church, right, what would still be your Christian identity? How would you explain your Christian, how would you explain it to someone else? What would you know yourself by if you didn't, couldn't go to church? If that got taken away from you. Again, down through history, this has happened a lot. uh, and, And Christians have had to kind of ride that understanding that we follow a person, not a place. For example, if you go back to the Old Testament, several hundred years before the birth of Christ, and you would interview the people who lived in Jerusalem, and they talked about their faith identity, they would have probably pointed at the temple. Because 
God sat in the temple. God came down. There were sacrifices there. Jerusalem was the holy city. The temple was a place God communed with God's people. There was sacrificial systems and priests and everything. They would have looked at the temple. But the problem was the temple got destroyed. They became slaves. By the way, this is the moment in the Bible when we finally get the word Jew. Because everybody living in Jerusalem at that time was from the tribe of Judah. So they get taken into slavery in Babylon. The temple is destroyed, you know, back home. And that Judah becomes Jew. And I point this out because, again, if you lose the ability to go to church, what was their spiritual practice? Some of it is the stuff you find in, say, the book of Daniel, Daniel, where there's this kind of personal piety commitment of Daniel going and praying every day, even when it got him in trouble. But what really happened was, as a collective, as a group of people, the Judah tribe became Jews, not because they had a temple, but because they had a word. Right? They were running out of Jerusalem, and they took what they could with them, which included, for them, a bunch of scrolls. Or, you know, picture us, we'd grab the book and run. They had scrolls, rolled up scrolls. That became their identity. Not the building anymore, but that word. Faithfulness to that word became a real thing in Jewish identity. And it was somehow different. And it was always there. There was always law and things written down. But that is the moment in history where God's people became a people of the word. And it matters because when we get to the stuff about Jesus, understand that whether it's Matthew talking about Mary giving birth, or it's the way the book of John starts about Jesus, which is, if you remember, the word was in the beginning. The word was God and is God, right? Remember that part of John? That's how he starts off his gospel. Not about birth, but about who Jesus is, the word. 500 years ago, during the Protestant Reformation, at that moment, it, the Catholic Church was, to many people, incredibly corrupt. And so what did they become when they had to give up their buildings, their cathedrals, when they were trying to reform and strip away all the stuff that had gotten overgrown, who did they become again? What did they look to? The people of the word. Nothing became more important to Protestants than the word of God. And you understand that through those traditions, this kind of Old Testament, the building might be taken away from us, or the building becomes an idol. Uh, somehow we become corrupt. Through it all, the people of the word. And it matters because then we're going to start talking about Jesus. So, as we get to that, that fidelity to the word, you know, it doesn't mean that theology is always going to make it easy then. In fact, it's going to get harder. It's like the Trinitarian belief, right? We're all Trinitarian believers, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There isn't a lot of logic to that. Because we say we believe in one God, and yet it's three in one. My guess is that Christians could have abandoned that idea a long time ago. They would have. But they can't because they're people of the word. And when you go to the Old Testament, there's absolutely a God, a Lord, a Father. There's the promise of a Messiah. There's a spirit that hovers over the waters. By the time we get to the New Testament, Jesus says, Go and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. 
The fidelity of the word, being a people of the word, often means that the very things that we are going to say out loud together or believe are not naturally going to make sense to us. They're not going to make a lot of logical sense. But if you're a people of the word, then you represent the word in everything. You get it? And that's what happens with Jesus in the Creed. We start with this next line. Jesus is conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Two things that are not supposed to go together. And in fact, in the early church, uh, people wanting him to be human or wanting him to be divine, and one or the other because they don't go together, was often the context of the debate. You see it in Matthew, actually, what we just read this morning. I would say in the book of Matthew, there is this assumption that he, Jesus is human. Right? There's no question that he was born. But what Matthew will do in his gospel, so will Luke and so will Mark, is he wants to prove and reveal to us that Jesus is not just human, but he's human and divine. Jesus was born. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. The book of John, on the other hand, is that book of the Bible where it begins with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Not a human thing, a God thing. And then what you see in John is the working towards and the evidence that, in fact, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The assumption in John is Jesus is God. Now John needs to show you how he's human, too. So where's the one gospel where Jesus says, put your hands in my wounds, my scars? What book does that happen in? John. Because the resurrected Jesus, and John is pointing this out to us, the resurrected Jesus is still flesh. He is still human. He is not just spirit. And you may go, why does any of this matter? It matters because... Fidelity to the word, being a people of the word, means that even when you have a whole bunch of stuff that doesn't seem to make sense, you still have to be able to say it because you're being faithful to it. Trinity doesn't make sense. Jesus is fully human and fully divine doesn't make sense. At the time that John was written, Matthew, Mark, and Luke get written very early. John is later. By the time John is written, the whole idea is, yeah, okay, Jesus is God. But that physical stuff, that human stuff, that's dirty. We can't say that about God. We can't say anything that comes from the physical world. We're supposed to ascend and move on and get our spirits away from these, these vessels called our bodies. In that period of history, that was called Gnosticism. It was a kind of a philosophical stance that was very popular at the time, but it did hate the idea that God would show up in flesh. And sort of a, no, that can't possibly be true. There were many Christians who rejected the idea that Jesus was anything other than, say, just a spirit, or a spirit that kind of took on a vessel for a while, but then would abandon it. And those who were faithful to the word, who understand themselves as the people of the word, said, nope. Everything we know about Jesus is that he was human as well. He was born. He suffered. He died. These are human things that Jesus did. And for no other reason than 
because we're going to be faithful to a word, then that is what we have to continue to confess, even when it doesn't make sense. And so you get these lines, like conceived by the Holy Spirit. Okay, start there. Conceived by the Holy Spirit. You get the God thing, right? Holy Spirit, virgin birth. Okay, well, you have Mary, you have a birth, so it's human. Understand about this, that this whole section is the, the creed wanting to emphasize that Jesus is both, but they're going to focus on the history of it. They're going to focus on the human part. Conceived by the Holy Spirit. Right? A human thing, but by God. And just to be clear, when they said conceived in the ancient world, we know now that conception is an act of two people's DNA coming together. They didn't know that then. Their picture of conception was the seed in the ground. The seed in the ground, the soil might be important, but who's passing on the genes? Who's, whose child is it if it's a seed in the ground? It's the one who gives the seed, so it's the Holy Spirit. Yes, he was conceived, but it's by God. He is God. Born of the Virgin Mary. Well, born is a human thing. I know that some people get really hung up on the virgin part. So you saw it in Matthew this morning, right? The, he... Mary is a virgin, which, by the way, is an interpretation of an Old Testament text which didn't have to be virgin. I said this before, I'll say it again. The Old Testament Hebrew was that it was maiden, the assumption that she would be a virgin. But the actual word in Hebrew is maiden. By the time Matthew translates it, he just uses the word virgin. And so we live with that word. But the important part there in that sentence is not Mary. She's not the subject. Jesus is. Conceived by the Holy Spirit, God. Born of the Virgin Mary, human. If there's something about the virgin birth that probably matters in this text, it's, first of all, that it's about Jesus. He's the subject of the sentence, that he's human. And that like most women in the Bible who get a birth story, Mary is chosen. The virgin part is about her being set apart as unique and different. But either way, we start off again, fully human, fully divine. And then we get to the rest of it. Born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. Why is so much of that a human thing? Why do we get two full lines after it that are about humanity in Jesus? It's because at the time that the Apostles' Creed was being created, humanity was the problem. You read the early Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they're trying to prove that Jesus is God. You get to this moment in history, and now you need to prove that Jesus was human. Both have to be part of it if you're going to be faithful to the word. Neither one gets to be thrown away. So look, what does all this mean to us now? Well, like I've been saying, faithfulness to the word. Hopefully we as Protestants both people who understand the Bible from the Old Testament and how they became a people of the word, our own tradition as Protestants, we still carry that on. Even when it doesn't make sense. Even when we stand and say stuff that is illogical. You know, as people of faith, we don't always have to make sense of it. We have to be faithful to it. When we use the word, we might be talking about the Bible, but the way John uses it, that the word was in the beginning and the word was God, your faithfulness is to Christ himself. 
When Jesus himself, as much as we understand, said, I'm human and I'm divine, and standing and confessing that is not about being right or having a logical sense. It is about the one we are devoted to, the word, has said it. So we stand and say it with him. But more than that, uh, you'll also hear, and we'll hear more about this next week, is so if you know, the nature of Jesus' suffering and dying, and then we kind of fill in that gap in our heads and go, oh, he died for my sins. And we'll get to that more next week. But yes, from the very beginning, the way Christians understood it was there is something that needs to be in this sacrifice that comes from God, and there needs to be something in this sacrifice that comes from humans. So Jesus does need to be both. We'll get to that next week. And then here's the one that I want you to carry with you into communion this morning. As a people of the word, don't focus so much on, or don't worry so much about born of a Virgin Mary or even conceived by the Holy Spirit. You're going to have to take that stuff on faith. Suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. I want you to focus on that and understand when you say that, what you're doing in history. Because there, things get really interesting. Did you know that crosses were used for criminals? Yeah, we know that. And we all kind of sit here now and go, yeah, it's a shameful death. No, I don't think you understand what kind of shame it was for the early church. Make a list of the worst criminals you've ever heard of. Pete Rose. <laughs> Maybe not the worst criminal in the world, but is he ever forgiven for what he's done gambling in baseball? No. Jesus was a Pete Rose. Or at least that's what they were trying to make him when he hung on the cross. Charles Manson. Hitler. The whole point of dying on a cross was that you got lumped in together with every other criminal. I know Jesus wasn't like those guys. But by being hung on a cross, the Roman Empire was saying, you need to be in that category. And all of those of you who followed that person, who liked that person, who associate with that person, you need to know that that category is real. He's a criminal. He's as bad as any of the rest of them. The idea really was to shame people. It wasn't just to have a death penalty. It was to shame that person and to shame the people around them. And it worked. There was no other death than the death on the cross being associated with criminals. Only the worst of the worst got that thing. Jesus suffered and died and was buried. And in the first years after all of that happened, there was nothing but shame to hear in it for most people in that society. You're, you're worshiping who? Another one of those people who lists, are on the list of criminals. And yet, that's changed for us, hasn't it? We hang this on our walls like it's an act of pride. We identify with it. We, we may even wear it around our necks and walk around in the world with it. There has been this flip over 2,000 years where that went from being the greatest shame to, for many of us, the greatest honor to be associated. 
when you acknowledge that Jesus was suffered and died and was buried, sure, you are acknowledging his humanity. That's why it's in the creed. But more importantly to you, I hope you recognize that you share a gospel with the world that turns shame upside down. Let me say that again. When you confess those words, you are saying, I confess a gospel where shame is turned upside down. When someone else, and this is what shame is, when someone else says to me, oh, you're such a bad person, I share a gospel that says, turn that upside down. And when in your own head, you say, I'm such a bad person, by the way, that is, that is shame, the self-shaming thing. It's not just that you did something wrong, it's that you are a bad person for doing it. This is supposed to turn that upside down. It is supposed to be the freedom from the labels and the names and all the things that this world will want you to walk around with. You say born, suffered, crucified, died, and buried because Jesus was human. But I also want you to always remember, and always try and hold on, that we stand as a tradition and say that most profoundly because it becomes good news. We are no longer tied to anyone's idea of who you're supposed to be only by him. I asked at the very beginning of this message this morning if you have, couldn't go to church what would your spiritual practice be? Reflect on that moment for a second. Did anybody's anxiety go up a little bit and go, uh-oh, I must be doing something wrong? Where, where is he going with this? Because that would have been my response, right? Uh-oh, I, I, I go to church. That's good. Oh, wait, that's not, that's not good enough. Where, where, where is he going with this? When you actually confess these words, the idea is that you pass all that. No more shame, not from someone else and not from you. You're not doing anything wrong. You've cast your burdens upon the human and the God who suffered, died, and was buried. And the shame goes with him, not with you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, again, thank you for sending Jesus into the world, your Son made flesh for us and for our salvation. And so, God, this morning, with grateful hearts, send us into the rest of this time together and into our lives, casting away the things that the cross took away from us, the shame, the doubt, the self-loathing. Let us give that away to the one you sent to take that away from us. And may we with joy share this good news. May we hold up the cross with pride, not with shame knowing that you transform history. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let's stand and sing our next song, Jesus Messiah. It's an insert in your bulletins.